0: Good morning. So, you know, you're sitting on vacation and you decide to pull up the news and you find out like the greatest spike in Florida history of COVID-19 is that day and then it's followed by two or three more in a row and you're like, that's pretty encouraging, right? Exciting way to spend vacation now. Um, So yeah, we were at the beach. That's why I'm going to kind of make a quick exit. It's not because they're creating a green room for me uh, with M&Ms, no brown or anything like that. Um, I am not in rock star status or or anything. So Um, but yeah, we've missed you guys Uh, Excited to be back excited to be in the word together Um, So let's let's start with prayer and then we'll 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 jump in from there Oh father um, Help us to lift our eyes up It's too easy to look at the news and our hearts be filled with turmoil It's too easy to get sucked into politics and causes and our hearts fear or doubt or enrage It's too easy to look around And father our hope and our help is up It's up above the mountains. It's the one who framed the earth It is the one who sent his son To be hated and mocked and scorned all the way to a cross To make enemies his children and so father help us to lift our eyes up That we might look at this world as people who need your son, whether they agree with us or not. Who need your son, whether they have the same politics as us or not. Who need your son, whether they follow the same causes as us or not. That the deepest burning need of humanity is your son. And that we would walk into our groups and we'd walk into our circles of influence with that burning in our heart. And nothing else being higher than that. Lift our eyes up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how many of you have sent a text message that, like, completely got misinterpreted? Anyone? Caused some anger that you didn't think anything was anger-causing about it? Caused some relationship tension, and you're like, that isn't at all what was supposed to happen? So many things get lost in translation in a text, right? Right? There's there's things especially the important stuff that have to happen face-to-face, right? We've all been there We've all had some family discussions based on something like that Heated family discussions based on stuff like that, right? We've all been there And so technology is good for its purpose But there's some things that have to happen face-to-face and I think that's a great analogy uh, As we look at discipleship as we look at growing in Christ together too many things get lost in translation if we just do this in a, in a, well, not as big as it used to be, gathering. Hopefully, you know, we're, we're spread out some. But, but too many things get lost in translation if we stay at this distance from each other. Too many things get lost in translation if we just go to our groups and if we just do our, our appointed Sunday and maybe Wednesday times. Too many things go missing, right? If we aren't face-to-face, it's too easy to hide, it's too easy to drift. It's too easy to disappear and no one really know it. It's too easy to put up a front or a face with another person from a technological distance. We're meant to be face-to-face. We need to be face-to-face. We are made to be face-to-face. And there's nothing that can substitute that in our lives. And so uh, as a staff, we've been wrestling with it. It's like, how do, we, how do we get to a place where through our Sunday schools and through our groups, how do we know where everybody is and how everybody is? Where are they spiritually? What kind of toll has uh, isolation and pandemic and social unrest, what kind of toll has it taken on them spiritually? Maybe they're thriving. Maybe this has been an awesome, refreshing time. Or maybe they're drifting and, and we just want to know. There's so many things that can only happen face-to-face, And so uh, I would just encourage you for your circles, and as we work through our classes and our teachers and our leaders, find out how the people around you are doing spiritually. Do it face-to-face if you can, if not, you know use the technology we, we do have. Uh, but we're looking at, at first Thessalonians today. As we continue through our series, and we've talked about the major theme of of 1 Thessalonians is that in light of the return of Christ, meaning the return of Christ is a motivator, the return of Christ is a sustainer, so in light of the return of Christ... That we should proclaim the gospel boldly to the people around us, to the culture around us, to the people that are in our circles of influence. But we shouldn't just proclaim it. We should live gospel-enhancing lives so that what our words say are enhanced by the way we live our lives and the way we treat people and the way we care about people and the way we speak, whether it be electronic speech or verbal speech, that we that we enhance the gospel with our lives and that we have embraced genuine gospel community. And if we're able to do those things, we will make an impact out there. And if we're able to do those things, we'll be able to endure and sustain with whatever afflictions and challenges and suffering enter into our life. So that's 1 Thessalonians in a nutshell. Last, or two weeks ago, we talked about relationships being our key to, uh, a key context for discipleship. And so Paul used relational language. He was a mother who sacrificed to nurture faith within the Thessalonian believers. He was a father who also modeled for them a way of living and then challenged them to live up to the standard. Encouraged them to live up to the standard. He was both their cheerleader and their challenger. And we need both, right? We need tenderness in our life and compassion, and we need toughness and challenge. We need both parts of that picture of God, both parts of that picture of discipleship. If we are going to grow, if we are going to truly press forward until the end of this life in progress of faith, and so he used the mother and father analogy. And then uh, he also, this text, asks, when it came to suffering, he was no longer a mother or a father to them. He was a brother. He was a fellow sufferer, no higher level, no lower level. Side by side, the church faces its suffering and the church faces its persecution. And so, again, this week we transition from those relational terms to continuing relationships as a context for discipleship, but more from the vantage point of Paul test, giving a testimony of his experiences and his motives and the things that he faced and experienced. And he's going to go from that vantage point as he transitions into the next section. And so relationships are the pathway for discipleship. Let's look at it in First Thessalonians chapter 2. By the way, I don't know if I graded out on your bulletin or if I just thought about doing that. We're not going to get through one through five. I'm just going to go ahead and confess it up front. So we're going to do two points today. Uh, we're going to go through the end of chapter two, and I think that'll be sufficient. Uh, I've just learned myself enough to like not even try. Okay. <laughs> and so we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, The word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out and they displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with a great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy? Or crown of boasting before the Lord, our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Relationships are the pathway for discipleship. Let's look at the first part. Disciple with the word so that transformation and endurance result. Disciple with the word so that transformation and endurance result. There's two major books that you can go to. For wisdom, for counsel, for perspective. Now, I'm simplifying things. The first book you can go to is the book of human history. right? And today's newspaper is tomorrow's history. So the book of human history, the accumulated knowledge and insights of all that have come before us, all the events that have come before us. And, and so you can look at it throughout history, and you'll find there's nothing new under the sun. We've tread this ground before. Somebody has tread this ground before. And so you can go into history, and you can see how did they think, what philosophies were present. You can go into human history, and you can, you can look at how did they solve this problem, and how did they handle this issue. And you know what you'll find? At least this is all I remember from history. It wasn't my subject, I'll be honest. Here's what I remember from human history. This war... Led to a little bit of peace that led to this war that led to a little bit of peace that led to this war that led to a little bit of peace that led to to this war. And so, for like however many thousands of years or billions, if that's your perspective, however many thousands of years of human history we have recorded, war, 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 war. And you know what we've gotten really good at? Is killing people better and faster and more at one time. That's the book of human history. We've gone from oppression to oppression, to injustice to injustice, to war to war. And we have got this devastated, scorched landscape of human history. This is how man's ideas work out. This is how the solutions of man work out. And if we, if we forget that history, we are doomed to go back and redo it again. We've tried this. And I'm not saying that for any particular issue of today. I'm just saying there is a source book that we go to and is the source book of human wisdom it is the source book of human experience it is the source book of how humans handle problems and situations and it is tragic and devastating it is tragic and devastating on individual levels and it is tra- tragic and devastating on national levels the the body count is beyond our ability to comprehend and that's man's wisdom for you that's man's solution for you. And so whether it's a local political issue or a family issue or a cultural issue or major cultural upheaval or politics or just plain common sense, it's a book that you can go to to try to solve human problems. And if we solve human problems using the book of history, using man's book with man's ideas and man's ways, if we disciple people into our politics, or if we disciple people into our morals, if we disciple people into our causes, or if we disciple people into man's way of dealing with stuff, we can feel really good. We can feel very right and very superior. But we can make absolutely no impact on transforming the human heart because the human's deepest problems, humanity's deepest problems, culture's deepest problems are not solved by man's wisdom, by man's words, and by man's ways. They are futile and they are powerless ultimately. Now that's not to say there is not a common grace where we are definitely more comfortable and we've eradicated diseases and and we don't die of things we used to die of a hundred years ago, but it is to say that ultimately man's history is a history of devastation. Fallen man's history. But there's another book I want to commend to you. There's another book that will give you a perspective. There is another way of thinking about the world. There is another way of viewing the world. There is another book to live by. And it is a book written by God. It is a book about a God who creates. It is a book about a God who redeems. It is a book about a God who walks into the suffering of humanity to, to sustain or to pull them out. It is a book about a God who is a refuge. It is a book about a God who pursues people who run from him as fast as they possibly can, but he outruns them, pursues them, saves them, rescues them, gathers them. It is a book about redemption. It is a book about salvation and ultimately, it is a book about replanting Eden in the scorched earth of man's ideas and man's philosophies. Now, this book is powerful. This book can solve the deepest human challenges on an individual level, a family level, a, a, a Culture's level, a nation's level, and a world's level. This book alone has solutions, but it doesn't just have solutions. This book alone has the power to actually transform the real issue. And I want to commend this book to you. There is a gospel that saves. When it saves, it reconciles us to God and to each other. And when it reconciles us to God and each other, it sends us out into the world to labor in love and to work in faith to replant Eden where the fall is scorched. So which book? Which book will you choose to view the world through? Which book will you choose to be governed by? Which book will you choose to live your life based on? Which book will you choose to share with the people around you? what word do your kids need? What word do the people in your Sunday school class need? What what word do the people in the church around you need? What word do the people in the groups that you'll go back to and work with or the groups you go back to and identify with, uh, whether they be political or hobby groups or whatever groups, what word do they need? There's a word has plenty of good things there's a word that can be right there's a word that can be moral but it's powerless and then there's a word that can save them and transform their eternity and give them the ability to endure redeem and influence in a in a brand new way the people around them what book what word Look at it. We'll jump into the text here and it says, and we also thank God constantly for this. And so the exact same wording from chapter one, verse three, we thank God constantly is here. And and Thanksgiving is a theme that will also show up at the end of chapter three. And so you can frame out the first part of the book of Thessalonians with with the concept, with the theme of Thanksgiving. Which fits, because chapters 1 through 3, we said, are the main division that basically is Paul commending the church at Thessalonia. I'm commending you because I see faith. I'm commending you because the evidence of your faith is the way you live your lives and the way you work and the way you love each other. I'm commending you because you're living out gospel transformation. And here, I'm thankful. I'm thankful because you received the word that we brought to you. Which we'll go into in a second. And then he's going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to end the section overall. He's commending them. And then chapters 4 and chapter 5 is the second main division that just challenges them to keep going. Like, don't stop with the progress you have. Keep pressing on in that progress. Keep growing in that progress. And so... In chapter 1, I'm thankful. I thank God constantly. Why? Because I see the evidence of your salvation in the labor of your love and in the work of your faith and in the enduring hope that has been built up in your life by the gospel of Jesus. I'm thankful because I see the gospel worked. Now here, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that when you, received the, or when you heard the word from us, you received it. And you didn't receive it as the word of man, you received it as the word from God. And so Paul enters into Thessalonica with, his, with Silvanus and Timothy and they declare the gospel. Here's the gospel and they go synagogue and synagogue and they go throughout the town and throughout the village and they set up a base of operation likely in Jason's house and they declare the gospel. And when the people of Thessalonica hear the gospel, it lands on their hearts And they receive it the way it really is. So it says they don't receive it as the word of man. They don't receive it as the book of man and the book of history. They don't receive it as, look, Paul's just got this new philosophy he's bringing to town. And, and in the Greek world, like people made their living and got famous based on, I have this philosophy and I've created a new philosophy and I've created this new way of thinking about the world and I've created this new way of viewing the world. And so these competing philosophies would travel from town, town to town, gaining students and gaining followers and gaining riches for the people that would share it but what they understood is when Paul spoke to them he wasn't just bringing a message from Paul he wasn't just bringing a new philosophy that is a new way of looking at things but it's kind of like all the other philosophies or it's kind of like the way everybody else views things it's just his slant on it they knew it wasn't the word of man they knew it wasn't the voice of human reasoning and human logic and human viewpoint now, by the way, we do completely believe in the common grace of God, that God gives humanity uh, the ability to think and the ability of reason. And some people in amazing and astounding and brilliant ways. I mean, there are people who have made inroads in like cancer research that use words I can't even understand, much less what they're actually trying to accomplish. Right. So it is, we're not eliminating the fact that man has given, been given by the grace of God these amazing abilities and intellects, what we're saying is that, that man's philosophy and man's way of viewing the world, if we stop at that and it is not connected to the genuine saving grace of God, that it will ultimately destroy or it will ultimately be futile or it will be unable to deal with the true and fundamental problems that are in, in front of us as opposed to the, the surface or, 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 or so smaller problems that are in front of us, not the eternal And so when you heard this gospel, it landed on your heart and you knew something was different about this word. You knew it wasn't just a new way of viewing the world and a new philosophy to get excited about. You knew it was the very voice of God. You knew God was speaking through this word. You knew God was working through this word. You knew God was accomplishing something through this word. And so it wasn't just a new man's idea. It was God's idea. It was God's truth. It was God's word being spoken. And you knew that was what was happening. They had the wisdom to see that this was God's word and God's wisdom and God's message. And so you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. I want you to think about the Word of God because it is a key feature of all of Scripture. Right? And so in the very beginning, there is nothing. And God has this formless, empty, mass blob. And what does he do? Light be. And what does light have to do? Come into existence and be. And then he's like... Sky and atmosphere be, and sky and atmosphere is, and land be, and trees be, and fruit and, and shrubs and all kinds of, of, of fruit-bearing plants be. And guess what they have to do? They have to exist because His Word spoke it. And stars and animals and skies and, 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 and stars and moons and, and animals and birds and fish just exist. And by the spoken Word of God, they have to come into existence. How you go forward? The longest chapter in all of Scripture is an acrostic, I think that's the right name for it, of, uh, it's an ode to the Word of God and how it endures and how it purifies and how it strengthens and how it, it creates endurance within us. And then you get to Isaiah. And he uses the example in Isaiah 55 of like water comes down from the heavens and it soaks the earth and crops and plants come up out of the earth because of this water. And he says, that's the way my Word is. It lands on dry parched ground. It hits a seed and life crop comes forth. My word, when it comes out of my mouth, will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it out. That's God's word. In Hebrews, it says God's word is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And it lays us naked before the one to whom we must give an account. And that's God's word. And that's why when David thinks about it, he's like, oh, it's sweeter to my taste than honey from the honeycomb. And it is more to be desired. It's more valuable to me than gold, than much fine Gold. And that's what the Thessalonians realized is this is not man's idea. This is God's living word that is transforming us. And then look what it does. It was the word of God that you received that is at work in you who believe. That God's word is an active word. That God's word is a transforming word. That God's word is a word that plants and sustains and encourages and strengthens transforming faith. You are faith people. You are believing people. And this Word is at work in you believing people. And so it saved you and transformed you. And then it continues to sustain you. And it continues to change you. And it continues to shape you. You received it as a Word. And that Word is at work in you. I mean, if it doesn't make you throw up, have you opened up Facebook lately? Or Twitter How many minds have gotten changed lately in 140 characters or less? Now, we've gotten pretty mad at each other. We've thrown some zingers in there. We've yelled our platitudes at the other sides. How many minds and hearts have been changed in 140 characters or less? But we've been able to retreat to our comfortable side, certain of our own rightness at the same time. Certain that we really got him with that one. Have we seen any redemption, any salvation, any transformation through the words of man? What do, what message should we view the world through, and what message should we give to the people around us? There's one of hope and life and redemption, and there's one that is so weak and so futile, and we see it every day, but we still jump in, or we still watch it like a train wreck. We can't take our eyes off it. Of. There is a better word, and it's a word that works. It's a word that's active. It's a word that creates life. What word? What book? And then he moves to this next section that's directly tied to that. You have this word that's living and active inside of you. You have this word that works, and there's a specific case that works that I want to commend you with. It works in the middle of your suffering. You see, the Bible is not Bible land and Bible world. Like, that's what I kinda, when I, early in my faith, kinda, you read it and it's like, oh, these are Bible characters in the Bible world and it all works out well in the Bible world and the Bible story. No, this is like a real word for real life. In the middle of your suffering, this word that works sustains you. And so this word of God that you receive is a, word that is a word that is going to sustain you in the middle of it. And so look at what he says. For, that's connecting it back into the word of God. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Or I'm sorry, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things. All right, so do you see the connection? Like, here's the word, it's at work in you. And he's not commending them for suffering. Everybody suffers. He's not commending them because, hey, you got a tough lot and a tough hand, good for you. He's commending them because they endure in the face of suffering. He's commending them because they remain faithful to Jesus even when it was hard and even when it cost them something. And so he's like, you brothers became imitators of the churches of Judea. You have a legacy of faith. Now in chapter 1, you imitated the apostles' lifestyle. And you imitated the way the Lord Jesus lived and what Jesus taught. So you, you became imitators of us and of Jesus in your, your way of living. And now you're going to become imitators in a different way. You're going to become imitators in how you endure through suffering. You're going to become imitators in what it's like to keep going with Jesus when it costs and when it's hard. You became imitators of the churches of Judea, the mother church, the first church church. The church that was in Judea, in the Jerusalem area. How did you imitate him? You suffered from your countrymen the way they suffered from the Jews. That's the imitation. You suffered and endured. Now, when it says you suffered from your countrymen, what is he saying? You suffered from the people that are part of your region and part of your culture. And what happened to the Jews? Jews they suffered and they were persecuted by the people in their region and that were part of their culture. And so the Jewish one was a little more homogenous. It was more religious. It was more, uh, obviously, directly religiously anti-Christian because that was an affront to their belief system. But in the Thessalonica church, in the Thessalonica region, you had this very mixed religious system, and you had Jews and you had Gentiles and all the stuff that was a part of it. But, but part of the people that surrounded them and the culture that they lived in They persecuted them and they suffered at their hands. And I think that's a good warning to us, or I think that's a good reminder to us. Suffering is a perfectly normal and natural part of the Christian life. And if you follow the road of Jesus, not the road of our our views and not the road of our politics, if you follow the road of the cross, the people in your area and the people in your culture and the people in your tribe will persecute you for it. Now, that may be the persecution of we're going to slap you on the hand until you get back in line. It may be the persecution of, hey, we're just going to kick you out of the group. We can't be friends anymore. Or it may be something that intensifies from there. It may be something where you are cut off. It may be something where there is an economic or a job cost to you. It may be something where there's even physical harm. Like all of these spectrums are things that that Paul and his his, uh, fellow believers had run into. But you suffered from the people in your culture. Why? Because you were transformed out of that culture. If you still followed the culture, the culture would still love you. If you still lived the same way everybody around you lived, you wouldn't be suffering for that. I think that's a warning to every single believer across the nation right now. Because it is too easy to walk on one side of culture or another side of the cultural issue. And it is too hard to walk with Jesus and speak a, a word of life into every culture. It's too easy to say, well, I'm on this side and my side's right and there's a good reason for it while keeping at a distance anybody that disagrees with me. But if you walk the road of Jesus, you know who's going to hate you? Everybody. You know who's not going to hate you? The people that God is calling out of death into life. The people that God is calling to himself. But you know what you'll offer? You will offer a word of life to your culture that no one else can offer because God uniquely put you there. You'll be offering a word of life that shows to the world around you that there is another way. And we don't have to dig our trenches anymore. You suffered the way they suffered. And then you just go quickly. And he, he talks about the Jews. Now this is not all Jews. This is the the, the, the Jews who are directly opposing the mission of, of Paul and the apostles. And he goes into this list like... They killed the Lord Jesus. They killed the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God, and they opposed all mankind. And so first I want you to see there's this legacy of faith in the midst of suffering, right? It started with the prophets way before Christ ever came on the scene. You know what the world did to them? They harassed them. They beat them. They imprisoned them, and they killed them. That is the legacy of the, of the church until we get to Christ. Christ, they harassed him. They persecuted him until they ultimately killed him. That's the experience And then it was the church of Judea's turn, the first church. You know what they did to you? They harassed you, they persecuted you, and they killed some of you. And then it's now not weird, not strange, completely normal. The legacy of faith has come to the church of Thessalonica. And the legacy of faith will come to us as well. That we have a long history of faith in the midst of suffering. Now, will we embrace it and continue it? Because the word is still living and active in us. Or will we withdraw and be quiet when it's our turn? Will we turn back when it's our turn? And then he says, they displease God and they oppose all mankind. And just for the sake of time, I won't go into that as much as God's opposed to it and it's destructive to humanity, right? And so what pleases God, what is to the glory of God is also to the maximum good and flourishing of mankind, right? And to what displeases God also opposes mankind, it destroys man. And what do they do? What is so destructive to man? What is destructive to humanity? They stop the gospel from going out into the lives of other people. That's the charge. That's the charge that is totally displeasing to God. And that's the charge that is destructive to humanity is the gospel is cut off. And anyone who wants to slow down the gospel, anyone who wants to turn us away from the gospel, anyone that's saying, no, go back to human agendas and plans and leave Jesus on the sideline, is doing directly the work of the enemy. Because they're hindering life from coming to the people it's meant to come to. All right. Sorry. I wasn't supposed to take the whole time on one point. I told you I knew myself better than to get to three points. That's okay. I do want to give you this one test before we move to the second point. Suffering will be ours. Right? There's no way around it. Wrath will come to the persecutors. The gospel will do exactly what God says, but here's a gospel question for you. Do you yearn and desire and pray for the persecutor? For the enemy? For the different? to come from being persecutor to being a fellow member of the cross who suffers alongside because of the name of Jesus if there is somebody that you would rather them be enemies and go to hell than to be saved there is something wrong with you not them not their politics not their atrocious behavior they're lost But if you don't want salvation to visit the people different than you, different politics from you, different agenda from you, different race than you, different cause than you, different way of viewing the world from you. If you don't want the gospel to go to them because the issue is too important to you, there is a problem with you. The gospel is what people need. And yes, it speaks life. And yes, it speaks transformation. And yes, it goes and undoes oppression and undoes injustice. But do not let anything in your heart say, I want to hinder the gospel because that person's not worthy. That person doesn't fit. That person is too different from me and makes me too mad. All right. Second point, disciple by remembering the eternal joy and worth of investing in others. Ah, Disciple by remembering the eternal joy. This is what it's supposed to be focused on. Uh, Yeah, we're going to have to go. Here's the deal. You're made by God. You're made for God. And there is a bigger joy than the joy of your sports, your money, uh, your, your side, your retirement, your house. There is a bigger joy that is available to you in God and not just God in giving your life away to people. When you give your life away to people, you will find more than you could ever possibly lose. And you will find more than you could ever gain anywhere else. So let's look at it in the text and so he goes on and he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person and heart, we've endeavored and more equally to come back to you. We've desired to come back to you. And so what is he saying? The word for torn away is a very powerful emotional word. It means to orphan or bereave of parents. When we were taken from you, it was like us losing our kids and knowing our kids had to go fend for themselves without us. That's how uh, deeply heart-wrenching for us it was. And so like, Paul, why hadn't you been back? We're suffering. Paul, why haven't you been back? We've needed you. And Paul's like, it has torn my heart out that I've been separated from you. It was like like you were orphaned and left alone and it 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 tears my heart out, but remember that was just a physical thing. It was in person. It was face to face I was you were never torn out of my heart Right, you you never left my affections. You never left my thoughts. You never left my heart So we were torn away in person, but we were not torn away You were not torn away in heart and we wanted to come back to you We worked we labored we endeavored and the burning desire of our heart was to get back face to face with the thessalonians with you with thessalonians we're not absent because we wanted to be. We're not absent because we haven't tried our best. He's going to tell us why he was absent in a second. Now, I think, for me, the past four months have made this statement make more sense than any time in my, in my Christian life. I've never had to be separated from the gathered body of believers for any length of time. Right? Right? I've never not gotten to go into a Sunday school class. I've never not gotten to show up in church. I've never not gotten to have meals and and share time with with other believers. Like from from the first church I was a member to now. So for the first time in my Christian experience, for four months, we're cut off from each other. And there's this longing to be back. And so like when I stand up here, I'm like, God, so good to see your face. That's not the thing that I'm supposed to say because I'm a preacher to say that. It's like I just stand up and look out like, wow, it is so good to be back. Do you feel that way? And I think there's a danger that I want to warn us all about, and it's the danger of getting a little too comfortable sitting at home. Because it's nice to have a cup of coffee and sit in your PJs and watch a screen. There's some good things to that. Don't let it be comfortable to worship at a distance. There There are medical realities that make it necessary. But don't let it become okay. Don't let it become normal and comfortable to not get together with other believers. Not to share meals with other believers. Not to share small group times with other believers. Never, ever, ever let that be okay in your heart. Even if it has to be a medical reality for the time. We long to be face-to-face and we worked hard to be face-to-face. But it didn't work out because Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. I'm going to give you two quick reasons that maybe. This is one of those statements, by the way, that's like, Paul, could you have just written one more sentence for me? Do you ever run into the Bible and you're like, God, Paul, if you'd just give me one more sentence on that one. Like we could settle election if Paul would write one sentence. We could settle uh, all the great issues that the church has fought about for 2,000 years if Paul would have just written one more sentence. Come on. it the, wouldn't take taken much page. Satan hindered us. Paul. Come on. That's a big enough statement that you could have followed it up with, like, what's the deal? Here's a couple options. One, the thorn in the flesh was considered a messenger of Satan sent to buffet Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So that's, that's possible, that one of the possibilities. Or the other possibility is the organized uh, opposition to Paul and to his group of, of missionaries was so well put together and so, so intense that it actually prevented them from getting back to the region. So if you remember, they're, run out, they're beaten in Philippi and they're run out of Philippi. They head over to Berea. They chase them down in Berea and run them out of Berea. They, they, they go to, to Thessalonica and they cause a huge riot and they get them run out of Thessalonica. This region had an entrenched opposition. So maybe that's what, what Paul was thinking about. But we wanted to be back and Satan hindered us. But let me Help you understand the value I put on you as a group of believers. And that's what he closes this section with. And this is a rhetorical question, which means it's really a statement. What is our hope or joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? It's you. Meaning when Jesus comes back and I, Paul, stand in the presence of Jesus perfected and completed and all the work is done and and to die is gain or to be in the presence of Christ. It's eternal gain that has just been opened up to me. What at that moment will be my hope that from here until there, you by the gospel will have sustained. You by the gospel will have stayed faithful. You by the gospel will not have turned back and you'll be standing right there before the face of Jesus with me. That's my hope. That whatever it takes out of my life to get you from here to there faithfully, from here to there without turning back, my hope is that that's going to happen. That Jesus will secure you and my life will spur you on. What's my joy? What is my joy when Jesus comes back? Is it going to be standing in the face of Jesus? Look, Jesus, how big my bank account is. Look, Jesus, how many times my sports team won no, I love sports, by the way. All right, don't get me wrong. Look, Jesus, at all of the career accomplishments that I had. Do you think that's going to be your joy at the face of Jesus when he comes back? No. What is your joy going to be? The joy in the face of Jesus is going to be to look around and say, these are people that are here in part because I gave my life to them. What is the greatest joy for all of your eternity? What is the greatest joy for your life right now? It is not accumulating. It is people with names and faces growing and securing and converting and and walking faithfully into eternity with you. So that the face of Jesus, you look around and you're like, these are people I've loved. These are people I've given my life to. These are people that I've invested in. These are people that have invested in me. That's my joy. You're my joy. When I show up in the face of Jesus or when Jesus shows up and I stand in his face And so I want to beg you to recalibrate the value system of your life Yes, we must work and yes, you should strive to diligently with excellence do everything you can to the best of your ability You should be the best that your company has or the best you 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 can give to your company. Yes But you give your life To the last drop of strength to other people. That's what's going to matter. And I promise you, your life will be fuller now, not emptier. I promise your life will be richer, not poorer. And I promise your life will have an eternal worth to it, not just this temporary one that's going to burn. You're our joy and then you're our crown of boasting. The word for crown, there's two words in the New Testament for crown. One is the diadem, which is the ruler's crown. Jesus will be crowned with many crowns, many ruling crowns as the king of kings. And then the second one is the Stephanos crown, which was a wreath they would put over the top of people who won in the games, who who were victorious in the arena. It was what we look at as a trophy. And that's the crown he's talking about. What will my crown, what will my trophy for all of eternity be? What will I boast in? You. Now, just to qualify this before we go into practical things, we're generally told to boast in nothing but Christ and him crucified, right? It's a little weird to say, I boast in you. You're my trophy. But if you look at them, they're one and the same. I'm not boasting in Paul and Paul's life and Paul's ministry. I'm boasting in what the cross accomplished in your life. I'm boasting of what the cross did in your life to get you to this moment. And so, yes, I got to be a part of that. That's so awesome of God to let me. But this crown, this trophy is the crown of what Jesus accomplished through me in the lives of people. It's not mine. It's Jesus' work. And it's you. And then he just summarizes it. You are our glory. You are our joy. I watched a movie forever ago called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Don't necessarily recommend it. it. It was like one of these little independent films that really didn't I'm assuming didn't do much I doubt many of y'all seen it but here's the deal uh it's either in in the out it's either in like a very remote part of Africa or like or or aboriginals in the in the outback and there's a plane that flies over and happens to throw a coke bottle out the window this tribe is so remote they have never had any outside contact they've never run into any of these things and so this bottle shows up this shiny glass bottle we don't know what it is it doesn't really do anything but there's no other one like it and so they take it back to their village and it becomes a status symbol. It becomes a cultural shaper. It becomes a power symbol. And the person that has the Coke bottle has status and power. It becomes this object of great value to them. And it creates so much dissension and so much fighting within this tribe that they eventually take it out in ceremony. They, like, throw it over a cliff. You know what it's worth to you? Five cents, probably not worth taking it to the recycling bin to get. When it comes to discipleship when it comes to relationships and investing your life in the people around you I'm afraid that in our church context that we valued that like we value a coke bottle It's not worth the five cents to drive over there and recycle it to get it It's not worth maybe the 15 cents that it would take to go and get it And this would be a, a great Seinfeld reference would come in but I can't for time's sake go to Seinfeld But I think we viewed discipleship that that way. And I want to challenge you and I want to challenge me to start viewing discipleship the way this tribe viewed that Coke bottle. It is so precious and so unique and so valuable. It is so culture-shaping. And so which way do you look at investing in people around you? Five cents or precious? A few practical things as we wrap up here. First, embrace God's word, not man's ideas. Man's ideas can be right, and they can be moral, and they can be emotion-stirring. But they're ultimately going to be futile, and they cannot solve the problems they are so hurt by. But there's a word that comes from God that can transform us, bring us together, and go and actually make a difference in the world around us. Which path are you going to, to take? The word of man has no power, but it also has no redemption. And have you noticed how graceless we are as a society? You are canceled. You are shut out, and there's no way back for you. Is that the world you want to live in? Or do you want a world that you get to come back from your failures, come back from your sins, be redeemed from your failures? That's the word that God offers you. That's the word God offers everyone else in this culture. That's the the word that goes against canceling into redemption. That's the word to live by. Second, value your life based on people, not stuff. When you look at the assets of your life, do your most precious assets have names and lives attached to them or numbers? If your value system doesn't change, Your ongoing behavior never will. I can get you to to do a few things differently if I say it enough or if you like me enough or if I guilt you enough. But I cannot change and reorient your life unless God changes and reorients your value system. And so would you allow him to change your value system of how much people are worth and how much giving your life away to them is worth? Because then your life will begin to adjust to that reality as well. Third, pursue community. It's going to be work. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. And it's going to be worth it. Pursue community. And here's some practical ways to start. Like we call them microgroups. We get into a group of two or three or four people that are of your same gender. How do you, how do you start? Like, I don't know where to go. Who are you already friends with? What believers are you already friends with that you can make your relationship more intentional? See if that's something God has for you. Look around your Sunday school class. You're already with them weekly, and at some point we'll have parties again. Who knows when? Like, is there anybody in that group of people that God might just connect you to? And if it's not that, men's or women's study. Just broaden it out until you run into somebody that God is attaching your life to for growth and change. And if, as a last resort, not a first, don't call us first, but call us at the end of this process. If you still need help, then then let us know. Let us see how we can help you out with that. Pursue community. Open up your home and open up your table. That's a way you can pursue community. But don't settle for anything less than face-to-face. Don't settle for anything less than life-to-life. Too much gets lost in translation otherwise. And then lastly, the first Thessalonian challenge, as Micah shared, we want to have you and me and every single one of us share our faith with one person we believe to not know Jesus before the end of this series. And as you can tell, it's taken a little longer than we thought, so you've got a little more time to look at your relationships with a lot of intentionality and see what God might want to do. Let's pray together. So, Father, fill us with your word. Your word is life, and it's beautiful, and it's precious. And put your word on our lips that we might be able to give hope and life to the people around us. That we might be able to see redemption plant itself, In the scorched earth of the fall. That life might come back. That life might force. That life might flow from us. God would you work within us that truth. That reality we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us as we close.